I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hey Jim, good to be back for our latest edition of The Other Hand. As always, a packed agenda. One day I won't say that, I promise, and people will miss it when it's gone. You're going to talk a lot about various developments domestically in Ireland, from housing completions data all the way through to the Minister for Finance apparently announcing a second rainy day fund. I'm going to keep calling it a sovereign wealth fund. Once you've done all the domestic stuff, or we've discussed the domestic stuff, you've introduced it, I want to talk about the United States. It's going to start with Biden's announcement that he is running for election again and what that might mean. And I'm going to tie it into something financial, but also something very, very political. It sounds arcane, but it isn't. It has the potential to affect everybody's life on this planet. And that's something as weird as the debt ceiling row that's going on in the United States. And I'll explain why it is potentially so important when we get around to it. So I think US politics, US economics, US finance are all interlinked as always, but even more so than usual. And we are approaching something of a crunch point when it comes to this debt ceiling thing that's going on in the United States. The other thing I want to talk about is the decision of the independent watchdog in the UK. It's called the Competition and Markets Authority. It has issued a decision to block a an acquisition by Microsoft of a company called Activision, which is a gaming platform. This decision is huge, but even bigger has been the response of Activision in particular, but also it has to be said Microsoft. It's been a jaw-dropping press release that Activision have rushed out in the wake of this decision. And I want to talk about that, uh, assuming that we get time. But first, Jim, over to you. Uh, lots to talk about in an Irish context. There is indeed, Chris. There was an OECD report out yesterday uh, looking at 
earnings and taxation in Ireland during 2022. The average pre-tax wage rose 4.8% to €54,649. Okay, but then if you superimpose an average inflation rate, the OECD uses 8.4%. That's the EU inflation measure. The CPI increased by 7.8%. But if you adjust those pre-tax wages for inflation, real earnings fell by 3.3% last year. So nothing strange there. It just confirms what we all knew. But then the report goes in and looks at what it calls the personal tax wedge. And the OECD defines the personal tax wedge as the amount of taxes a worker and an employer pay as a percentage of total labour costs. The OECD average for a single worker earning the average wage is 34.6%. So in other words, 34.6% of the labor cost of that worker is paid in taxation. So 34.6%, the OECD average, the Irish one came in at 34.7%. Okay, so very much in line. But then you look at a one earner couple with children, the wedge falls to 20.8%, quite dramatic. And that is below the 25.6% OECD average. So what that really shows us is once again, the progressivity of the income tax system here that uh, we, we talk about. So in other words, those who can afford to pay more taxes certainly do pay a lot more taxes. The CSO also published a few bits of data, as did the revenue commissioners. Um, And the overriding theme is once again, this massive, massive divergence in our economy between the multinational sector and the domestic component of the economy. So the CSO published corporate profits for last year, total profits last year earned by the corporate sector, 297.5 billion. The domestic component of our corporate base paid 36.1 billion and the foreign component paid 261.4 billion. An, an incredible contribution once again from the multinational sector in terms of profits. And of course, that is reflected in the corporation tax take that I want to talk about in a second. But between 2017 and 2022, the foreign owned component of the Irish corporate sector saw its profits grow by 98%. So that's over a five year period to 2022. growth. But you can see there the massive contribution that the foreign old multinational sector makes to the corporation tax take. And indeed, the revenue commissioners have just published data uh, for 2022 on corporation tax. In 2022, 57% of corporation tax was paid by 10 multinational companies. So that's effectively 13 billion of the just over 22 billion in corporation tax collected was paid by 10 companies. That was up from 53% in 2021. So we're getting more and more concentrated in terms of where the corporation tax is coming from. Other interesting aspects, multinational corporations, foreign owned ones at least, accounted for 19.6 billion or 86.5% of the total corporation tax take. Irish multinational companies, you know, and we have a few Irish multinationals like Smurfit Kappa, Glambia, to name a few, 
but they pay CJP economics. CJP economics, absolutely, Chris. Thank you very much for pointing that out. But they paid nine hundred and twenty-eight million, which is just four point one percent of total corporation tax. And then this is the domestic part of the economy. The non-multinationals paid two point one billion, or nine point four percent. So what that's effectively telling us. Uh, as we've discussed so many times, just this massive contribution that the multinational sector makes to the overall economy and the tax take. Uh, the CSO also published data on productivity. And this is something I've written about over the years, about this massive divergence between productivity, which is defined as output per worker in the multinational or foreign-owned component of the economy, and the domestic component of the economy. So one way of measuring this is the gross value added per employee. And for foreign-owned companies, that's the, the average employee contributed €399,811 in gross value added. And the domestic component was €78,086. So you can see there wow. that they, the foreign workers in the foreign-owned parts of the economy are more than five times more productive than the domestic component. And, and listen, there's there's all sorts of stuff going on here with transfer pricing, you know, which ad, exaggerates the uh, the price of the output of the foreign-owned component and so on. But still, you know, even if you adjust for that, there's still a massive divergence, and that's why. I have argued um, on this podcast, uh, in fact, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book about it with an accountant, Cormac Fitzgerald, down in Kinsale, uh, about the SME sector and about the productivity problems in the SME sector. And I was arguing in that book that it is high time we set up an IDA-type body with specific responsibility for the SME sector. Um, Enterprise Ireland looks after growing the export potential of SMEs or Irish companies, but there are a lot of SMEs that actually don't export. So they don't really have any state agency looking after them per se. So I would have argued an IDA type body and that IDA type body, I think should be focused on addressing all of these areas of productivity deficiency in the SME sector. You know, it's, it's, it's stuff like financial management, HR management, you know, all of these SMEs are really, really good at doing what they do, you know, producing a good or service. But they're a lot less good in many cases at innovation, at growing markets, at advertising, at financial management, at HR management, all of that stuff. Basically, SME owners are generally so busy trying to produce what they produce that they really find it difficult to have time, number one, or number two, to afford the resources to enhance all of these productivity uh, driving factors within a corporate environment. Um, and I think this latest uh, productivity publication from the CSO uh, just brings that home very, very strongly. So that's the the sort of corporate structure of the economy and the stuff we've learned over the last few days. Housing, quite a big week as well. The Minister for Housing, Darrell Bryan, announced a number of measures that I actually have argued for for some time, as have a lot of other people. Um, it's a Basically, it's a 1 billion euro package or close to a billion euro package to try and speed up the delivery of housing. So there's a couple of key aspects of this latest package. Um, they're going to, when a developer develops 
a residential unit, they have to pay development levies to the local council to pay for water and other utilities. And the average is 12,650. So, you know, obviously that's an average. So in, in some cases, depending on the price of the house that's being built, it could be up close to 40,000. But the average is 12,650. So the government has decided they're going to scrap this for a 12-month period in order to try and improve the viability of delivering new housing. It does not necessarily mean that this relaxation of the development levy will be passed on in lower prices to the house buyer. It may, it may not. Uh, you know, it, it, there will be differing circumstances for differing housing developments, I assume. Uh, but the point is that hopefully, you know, it will improve the viability of delivering residential units. And in turn, that hopefully will improve the supply side of the equation and that may have some impact on the price paid by the house buyer and i know we've had all this discussion many times about the impact that housing supply has on house prices you know it's it's not as straightforward as just to say if you increase supply prices are going to fall it's much much more complicated than that but i do think this is a step in the right direction in terms of addressing the supply side of the housing market and in improving viability. Government also announced higher grants uh, to bring more vacant and derelict properties back on stream as habitable residential units. So there is a grant for vacant properties. So if you get a vacant property and you do it up and make it habitable, the grant has been increased from 30,000 to 50,000. That is significant. And for derelict properties, the grant has been increased from 50,000 to 70,000. So I have to say, you know, it's another small step in the right direction uh, because, you know, in a, a couple of podcasts ago, we were discussing the corporate tax bonanza and, and what should be done with that. And I was quoting Paul Murphy, the People Before Profit TD, who was arguing that we need to spend all of this money basically buying social housing. And I, and I, I, my response to that would be, well, unless you actually increase the supply of housing, that just buying up social housing um, is just going to create even worse problems in the private sector. So I think this is a step in the right direction in improving housing supply. A small step, but progress, I think, nevertheless. We got data from the CSO on house completions for the first quarter. And in the, well, I should say residential unit completions, not necessarily housing, okay, 6,716 new dwellings, residential dwellings were completed in the first quarter. That's 19.1% higher than the first quarter of 2022. And just to show you the breakdown, apartments accounted for 36.1% of those completions. And this is the first time ever apartments have accounted for more than a third of re residential dwelling completions. P progress is being made on the supply side. There is no point arguing otherwise. You know, last year we delivered over 29,000, despite expectations in some quarters that we won't hit that total this year based on housing commencements. You know, hopefully uh, the completions we've seen in the first quarter may suggest that we could actually match or perhaps a hopefully exceed what was delivered last year uh, but you know obviously there's still three quarters of the year to go so anything can happen there but uh, certainly the housing situation progress is being made 
Uh, but as we've said many times, a lot more progress is required because um, I repeat myself like a boring parrot, but economically, socially, politically, housing is where it's at. And uh, there is no silver bullet solution here. Uh, there's at least 20 different th things that need to be done to get housing supply back on stream at levels that are acceptable. And stuff like we've seen in the housing package this week, I think, you know, another, it, it's it's part of the solution. So progress is being made. And that's exactly how you'd expect progress to be made with something as difficult to turn around as housing. To use the old cliche, it's like a super tanker turning around and it ain't going to turn on a sixpence. If you annualise those first quarter numbers, Jim, then you will hit the targets. And it's good that money is being devoted in a way, in a controlled way, to, to this problem. But may I turn the discussion to the other side of the Atlantic? Well, before, before you do, Chris, you mentioned in the introduction Michael McGrath's comments about setting up another rainy day fund. Yeah, that was just something that was I saw on the Irish Times website. I haven't seen any details around the story. Why you'd want a second one when you haven't had the first one for that long, I'm not entirely sure. There may well be a very good reason to set up a second one. I don't know many countries that actually do set up multiple sovereign wealth funds. It seems to me to be, on the face of it, a reason to incur extra admin, management and other costs associated with running these funds. Speaking as somebody that was once heavily involved in the asset management industry, I can tell you that it's a scale game. And one of the objectives, apart from achieving high investment returns, is that you minimise your costs. And that the only way you really minimise your costs in the fund management, asset management game is scale and you, you reap scale economies. So I'm not entirely sure about the wisdom of a second rainy day fund, but we shall see when we look at the details. But right now, I must say I'm extremely skeptical. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I prefer two than none. So, uh, and we have one. So I, I think these are the right noises, you know, to look at these corporation tax receipts, look at the concentration risk that I described a little bit earlier. And uh, you'd have to say that a sensible strategy 
is to put that money as much as possible into a sovereign wealth fund and um, any of it that's going to be spent should be spent very wisely because there is always way too much emphasis here on inputs. There's never enough emphasis on outputs. So I think we need as a country to focus much more on what we actually get for the money that we invest um you know, a public funding. It strikes me that from what you said um, earlier on, Jim, that there's a, a screaming, crying need, as there has been for quite some time, but it seems to be getting louder rather than quieter, for some kind of rebalancing of the economy, not um, away from the international sector to do anything to damage the international sector. You, you want that to continue growing as much as possible, but you do need more SMEs. You need more of them, and you need more of them to become big, non-SMEs, uh, domestic companies and so the extent to which some genius out there can invent policies devote some resources perhaps to thinking about how we might actually achieve that that i think for the long-term future of the irish economy is vital actually yeah no um, I, I, absolutely i to- totally agree and, and i guess the point about the multinational sector is that you know i would not criticize it or denigrate it it's a really important part of the economy and indeed Many SMEs depend on the multinational sector for their survival because they they sell goods and services in. So it's not a question of either or; it's a question of both. Uh, but I do we, think there there is an imbalance. We just need to address the SME side of the equation. It's too small an island to be running two completely separate economies, Jim. Yeah, we've had Joe Biden announce that he's running for a second term. Hardly the biggest surprise. There was, I suppose, a feeling that he shouldn't run because of his age. That's not something I want to go into. I want to talk about that decision and how it links into something else, this debate over the debt ceiling, which I'll come to in a moment. But first of all, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about an absolutely fantastic article written in the Atlantic magazine. Great publication, thoroughly recommend it, worth taking out a subscription. The article was written by somebody called David Frum, who is, I guess, the epitome of the never-Trumper Republican. This guy used to be a speechwriter for George Bush. He's acquired the reputation back in the day of being something of a neocon. So he's no Democrat. He's no flabby liberal. But he thinks that the Republican Party, with Trump most likely now to get the nomination, is heading for electoral disaster. The Republican Party, says Trump, had a five-point plan to win the next election. Point number one was to replace Trump with somebody less obnoxious. Point number two was to capitalise on the inflation problem facing Biden and other economic woes that they could play up. Point number three in this five-point plan was for the Republicans to offer popular, verging on populist, policies on things like drugs, crime and the border. Point number four was to embark on a campaign to reassure women about the post-Roe versus Wade future. This, of course, was the Supreme Court's decision a little while back, to overturn Roe versus Wade, the 19, early 1970s Supreme Court decision to allow abortion and to throw it all back to the states. And an awful lot of states have done things like ban abortion outright. And we've also got the more recent one, I think it was in Texas, where the morning after pill was temporarily at least made illegal. Point number five was to ease up a little on absolutely blatant voter suppression moves. This is something that Jerry Mandering all sorts of different things that they get up to to try and maximise their own vote. 
Um, and the reason why this five-point plan had point five as easing up on this is that if you go too far with this, you annoy too many Democrats who are then more likely to vote against you about this five-point plan is that every single aspect of it has been turned upside down and inside out. On point number one, Trump, he's going to run and he's going to get the Republican nomination. That seems clear to everybody. It's not certain anything going to happen between now and the Republican Party convention. But at the moment, if you were a betting man or woman, you would say Trump is cruising to the nomination. The second point you might remember was about turning up the dial on economic criticism of Joe Biden, in particular inflation. But in a way, the Republicans were hoping for a recession. Now, they may still get one, either by hook or by crook. But at the moment, it doesn't. On the data, they're not getting one. And there aren't really that many economic woes to play up. The fall in unemployment under Joe Biden has been the biggest under any president, according to Frum. I haven't checked that data, but that's what he asserts. I'm going to come back to what the economy might do to the Republicans in a second in the discussion of the debt ceiling. On drugs, crime and the border, the grand old party, the GOP, as the Republicans are also called, has only one policy proposal out there at the moment that we can discern, that from also can only discern. I bet you don't know what it is, Jim. I was surprised to learn what it is. Apparently, their drugs, border and crime uh, thing is all linked together in one proposal to bomb Mexico. Don't know whether you've seen that. No. Um, that's quite a proposal, isn't it? Um, I assume that we're not taking it seriously. No, I hope not. Point number four, reassure women on Roe versus Wade and abortion rights. Well, that's gone backwards, isn't it? Yeah. Um, with all the various ways in which the Republican states are banning abortion and these rulings that eventually ended up in the Supreme Court in recent days on the morning after pill. Frum goes on to argue that Biden may not be the ideal candidate. He may be a bit too old in some people's eyes, and he may not be everybody's cup of tea. But he's going to be the only cup of tea on the ticket. And if you are exercised by any or all of those things that we've just been talking about, um, he's the only one that could possibly really stand a chance of beating Donald Trump. There ain't anybody else in the, in the Democrat Party that will come any close to attracting the vote such as it is that Biden will get. I think that's absolutely spot on, that analysis. I find it hard to disagree with it. I'm reassured by it, and I'm glad to see a Republican commentator saying that Trump has no chance. Obviously, there's a long way to go. It's November of next year, for example, that uh, we, 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 we won't know. I think it's really interesting that, that reasonable Republican commentators are saying that the, the Republican Party is coming close to an electoral wipeout next year. But I think this is going to be something that we'll be talking about a lot. I want to focus on the one of the five points was about turning up the economic heat on Joe Biden. Now, one of the ways these wingnuts in Congress on the Republican side of the party, and I choose my words carefully, are turning up the heat is over something called the debt ceiling. This is something really, really weird about the United States. Um, for years now, it's had uh, legislation, decades, maybe even centuries, whereby they have to pass a new law every now and again, sometimes twice a year, to raise the amount of debt that the federal government can issue, how much money it can borrow. I guess it's, it was an attempt to restrict the amount of money that the um, federal government could, could borrow. 
And it's led to all sorts of things. It's not quite the same thing as the things that have led to government shutdowns, although the two can be linked. Government has shut down in the United States, believe it or not, because they row about their annual budget, an exercise that's not too different to what we go through in both Ireland and the UK. That's a separate thing. The the debt ceiling rows, for example, the one between Obama and Congress, about 10 years ago, I suppose it must be now, um, led to a credit downgrade of the United States, which is which is not a good thing. If this debt ceiling, which was actually reached last January, they haven't been able to borrow technically any more money since January of this year. And they've had to go into what's called special measures. They've raided reserve funds and all sorts of accounting rinky-dinks in order to be able to keep things going. But sometime over the summer, if Biden's White House and McCarthy's Congress doesn't reach a deal over the debt ceiling, then the US runs the risk of not being able to service its debts, either to pay interest or pay back the principal, um, pay back the debt when it becomes due. If that happens, then... Uh, nobody knows what's what would what would ensue from that. The fear that a lot of economists have is that it would be chaos. It would be global financial crisis time all over again. U.S. interest rates would shoot up. The dollar would collapse. All U.S. asset prices would collapse. There would be a big recession in the United States, and it would ripple out globally. If you thought that the last financial crisis was bad, this one could be much worse. And I say could be because nobody knows. But last time, we started to worry when a couple of banks failed. If the US government fails, imagine the scale of that disaster. Now, the wingnuts in US Congress, they think that damaging Joe Biden in this way is a good thing to do for its own sake. They don't care about the consequences, whatever they might be further down the road. And they just want to damage uh, Joe Biden and force him. The row is that they're trying to force him to cut the Social Security and Medicaid type uh, expenditure programs that the US government has. There is a slightly more strategic thinker amongst these um, lulas in the Republican Party who think that if they can cause a recession, a big financial crisis as a result of the debt ceiling row, then Joe Biden's electoral prospects will be hurt because he'll be blamed. I guess that's possible. It Um, is certainly logically possible, but I think it's extremely unlikely. I think the people that will get blamed for this will be the people that caused it, which will be Kevin McCarthy's Republican Party. So there there are nutty things going on in the States that could affect everyone, everyone listening to this podcast, everyone living in the United States and elsewhere. One of the things that has caused me to bring this up now is that it's been bubbling under the surface for some time. It's it's worth a mention now because we are getting closer. We're not sure when the actual date is. It's going to be sometime over the summer when the rubber will really hit the road on this. But you remember when we talked about the banking crisis a couple of weeks ago with SVB and Credit Suisse? The canary in the coal mine, Jim, was something called credit default swaps, which is a piece of financial jargon to indicate the the ways in which people bet on other institutions failing, not being able to repay their debts. It's a way of taking out insurance. So it's a very legitimate way. If somebody owes you money, you can buy an insurance policy against them not being able to pay you back. If you're a trader, you can make a bet. You don't actually have to own the debt to take out the insurance. You can just bet that somebody's going to fail. It'd be like somebody taking out an insurance policy on me, Jim, that I was going to die tomorrow. 
Um, apparently, you can do that uh, in some countries, at least. The credit default swaps on United States government debt. We're not talking about Mickey Mouse banks here. We're talking about U.S. treasuries, the safest, most important asset in the world. They're blowing out. And they're blowing out in ways that they didn't do before in previous debt crises, debt management crises, debt ceiling rows. And markets are starting to get nervous about this. It could all end up with a big compromise. I think that's the, the hope that everybody has. But some people are now starting to buy insurance that that isn't going to happen. Buying, a, buying insurance for the possibility that the US defaults on its debt, that is catastrophic if that comes to pass. So this is something we're going to have to watch very closely. It's something you and I are going to have to take very seriously indeed. But it's rattling markets at the moment. And if you think about what's actually happening, US equity markets can't go up at the moment, despite the good earnings. We spoke about that on the last podcast. Um, There's another bank in trouble in the United States. There's never one thing driving markets. But I think the combination of the banking woes, another bank in trouble in the States, and this debt ceiling row is going to keep markets nervous for quite some time to come. So I'd be very cautious short term. So I think that it's interesting that Joe Biden is being talked about as a shoe in in some quarters, but there could be a catastrophe for the US economy along the way, which could lead to all sorts of unanticipated, unanticipatable consequences. So, mate, this is one we're going to have to keep a close eye on. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, You talk about Biden being a shoe in. Uh, his approval ratings aren't great. Uh, it's 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 amazing. I read a lot of stuff out of the States. I think more than anywhere else, really, you do have to season it just for who it's coming from. Because I, I see, you know, one commentator write some really positive stuff about Biden's economic management over the last couple of years, what he's achieved and the reform he's introduced, particularly targeting um, lower and middle income workers in the United States and uh, you know that that is significant but then you look at other commentators who basically believe he's a communist and uh, is going to destroy the US economy it's 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 such a divisive and divided society and country at the moment and uh, that that is really going to be highlighted over the next few months with the Kevin McCarthy and the debt ceiling issue um, Jim can I ask you a question yeah do you think the US can survive? No, because uh, either, either Biden's going to win with the consequences for the people who don't, don't vote for Biden and hate him and loathe him, go to Texas. And I don't think you'll find a, a single Biden voter in to- Texas these days. Um, or um, Trump is going to win and flip all those arguments on, on their head. Uh, do you think the United States can survive in this divided fashion? It's 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 an open question. Um, I don't expect you to answer it, but I think it's a very yeah, interesting oh, yeah. question. It, it is. It is indeed the nature. I of, can't answer it. No, the nature of the division is just phenomenal. But but it's politics generally around the place. Uh, okay, you look at the reaction of the Trump people if he runs next time, and if he loses the election, and you look at the reaction, and then if um, you know Trump won the election, you look at the reaction of the other side. But uh, I, I would like to think about. In, in this country, you know, Sinn Féin are being widely mooted as being the lead party in the next government. There's a huge level of expectation and, dare I say, arrogance about Sinn Féin being in government from people who support Sinn Féin. And it may or may not happen because there's still a distance to go, but there's a fair chance. But if Sinn Féin did not get into government next time, 
what sort of reaction would you expect from um, Sinn Féin voters? Well, uh, you know, they're moving towards the centre all the time, Jim. And I think that uh, you, you people who live in Ireland and will have to deal with this should take a lot of encouragement from the fact that Michelle O'Neill has decided to accept an invitation to attend the coronation. Yeah, indeed, 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 yeah. Jim, we're running out of time and I just wanted to mention a big piece of news in the middle of this week was that the Independent Competition and Markets Authority uh, blocked the takeover of a company called Activision by Microsoft. It's Microsoft's biggest corporate deal in its history. I think it was about $75 billion. And the fact that the Competition and Market Authority said, no, you can't do this for competitiveness reasons. Um, Activision is a gaming company. It does Call of Duty and World of Warcraft and a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm sure you play every day, Jim. Uh, and the the decision was interesting in its own right. And I, I'm, I personally, for one, I'm glad to see that some competition authorities are standing up to these monopolies. Um, I think they should be broken up rather than allowed to merge. But that's a separate thing that we've talked about before. But it's the response of Activision that's extraordinary. Let me read something out to you. This is what Activision said, and I suspect they're going to regret issuing this immediately in the wake of the CMA's decision. And I quote, the CMA report contradicts the ambition of the UK to become an attractive country to build tech businesses. We will work aggressively with Microsoft to reverse this decision. The report's conclusions are a disservice to UK citizens who face dire economic prospects. We'll we will reassess our growth plans for the UK. Global innovators, large and small, note that despite all its rhetoric, the UK is clearly closed for business. Now, all I can say about that is, wow, and they should have run that past their PR people before they said (laughs) that. That is just dumb. So I applaud the competition people in the UK for doing this. It's a long, the time has long since passed where these big, big monopolies should have been stood up to. And as um, Corporal Jones used to say in Dad's Army, most of our listeners won't know what the heck I'm talking about here, is that they don't like it up them, do they? <laughs> uh, that's fascinating. Chris, uh, I spoke, I just want to wrap up on one small point. I spoke about the Irish Corporation Tax Take, the stats, uh, 86% of corporation tax coming from the multinational sector. Uh, but there's other statistics in there that I will I will ha- just leave out there. 53% of income tax paid in the country comes from the multinational sector. 49% of PRSI, 49% of VAT paid, and 47% of private sector wages are paid by the multinational companies. So the economic contribution is just so massive. Chris, I'll leave it there. Um, have a great weekend. Um, I'm off to Amsterdam to a stag party at my age, believe it or not, but there you are. Jim, I do hope I will see you next week. (laughs) So do I, Chris. But if you don't turn up, if this screen is blank, I I know where to look for you. (laughs) You do indeed. Cheers, mate. Have a good one. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it.
Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 